Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. I'm Battlefield Historian Matt McLaughlin and I am loving this podcast series. It's fantastic to be out walking across the great battlefields of Europe and indeed a few more far-flung places are on the horizon as well. So walking across the great battlefields of the world. I'm loving it. Thank you to everyone who's been contacting us. We're Thousands and thousands of new listeners have joined us in the last month or two and it's just wonderful to hear that people are enjoying what we're doing. So please continue to send us comments continue to send suggestions into us a lot of people are listening to us on youtube which is quite interesting so continue to send lots of good messages through there facebook twitter we now have dedicated pages uh, for battle walks on both facebook and twitter so certainly track us down also personally me matt mclaughlin or my host pete smith um or living history there's a whole heap of ways to get in touch with us so please just do reach out say hi we we love to hear from you joining me as always from france is pete smith pete g'day hi matt Ready for another uh, walk on the battlefields? It's going to be a good one, this one, Matt. I, mate, I always love um, getting out. We, we do some that are in cities. We do some that are on specific sites. But I love these ones where we get out and actually walk across a battlefield. And this is a good one. We did Bullocore a few weeks ago, which was really great. I really enjoyed that one. And that's been one of our most popular downloads we've done to date. This is another one. Again, it'll resonate with our Australian listeners, but I'm sure our listeners from Britain and Canada and the US and France and everywhere else will also enjoy it because it's just such a fascinating walk. This is the Battle of Le Hamel, or the Battle of Hamel, as it was called during the First World War, in 1918, not to be confused with the region also in the Somme of Beaumont-Hamel, where the famous Newfoundland Memorial Park is. This is Hamel near Villers-Bretonneux, right in the heart of the Australian battlefields. It's going to be a good walk. 
It certainly is, and uh, very right to comment upon the Le Hamel Hamel issue, uh, because the, there are more than one, uh, I think there are about three Hamels just in, in this area, in the Somme and, and Pas de Calais, so we always make sure that when we're talking about it, that we, we say Le Hamel, but the soldiers uh, and the, the officers uh, at the period uh, that the fighting took place in 1918, they would have just known it as Hamel, but, but try and use Le Hamel, if certainly if you're doing any research or you're trying to find it on the map. There was even one when we did our D-Day podcast on Port and Besson. There was also, I noticed as you were talking about their, their objectives as they came ashore, there was a Hamel there in, uh, in the middle of all that as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a popular French name. It probably just means a small village or something in French. It's a, it's a very common, um, it probably harks back to the same as the word ham in English, which just you know, relates to a small village. There's, prob- there's probably a connection there. I'm no linguist, but I assume that there's a, there'd be a connection, but it is a very popular name, particularly in this part of France. It is, yeah. So, an interesting walk, this one. Um, where should we start? Because I do want to talk about John Monash, because this battle is considered his, you know, it's been called his masterpiece. I mean, <laughs> Peter Fitzsimons had his book, which came out a couple of years ago, called Monash's Masterpiece, 93 Minutes That Changed the World. And, you know, we we, we Australians are always uh, always up for a bit of hyperbole, but I thought that one was a <laughs> quite a... That was, that was going all in. That was, a, that was a going all in on the importance of this battle. Let's start with the history. Let's do one of your excellent potted histories of why this thing occurred. And then let's just talk a little bit about Monash and its importance in the scheme of the First World War. Okay, so um, the Battle of La Hamel, uh, what's it all about? Well, this is a period when we are drawing breath. We've just faced the German onslaught, uh, the Grey Avalanche, uh, that started on the 21st of March. And the Germans have been pushing us back effectively uh, up until uh, almost this period. So uh, let's get the date sorted out. The 4th of July. This is the battle that's going to take place on the 4th of July. This is, we should say at this point, this is 1918 we're talking about. So we're late in the war. We're back in the, I mentioned Somme at the top of the, uh, at the top of the discussion. And that's true. We are back in the Somme, uh, but not in 1916. We're now uh, late in the war in 1918. Yeah, so Grey Avalanche, the Germans forcing us back. We've basically stopped the Germans. Uh, We are drawing breath, and it's going to be our turn. We are preparing. We are going to now take the war back to uh, uh, the Germans and start to force them back. Uh, It's going to be known as the the Hundred Days, uh, the Battle of Amiens, um, and it uh, basically will start uh, where we are, at, at Le Hamel. So... But we're not going to talk about that for a future podcast. But that's what where we are at this point. And there is a bulge in the line. There's a bulge in the line that needs to be sorted out. But there's something else going on. The French are under pressure again. And they are, they are holding. They've been uh, equally under pressure by the Germans. And they are also hoping to draw breath. And so what they want is they don't want any more Germans uh, basically turning up in their sectors and putting even more pressure on them. So they're requesting if we can keep the Germans busy. In other words, if we can keep nudging against their lines, we call this at this period uh, peaceful penetration. It actually comes from 1917. Um, And this is where we are basically just taking lumps out of the German lines. We're not giving them back. We are raiding and then holding the sections. So we're we're keeping the Germans under pressure. But we have this big bulge at Le Hamel that involves a little bit of a ridge, it's called the Wolfsberg, and it gives the Germans a good view, and we really need the Germans not to have that view, and we need to straighten the line. So this battle is all about straightening the line and taking out this this bulge in the line in preparation for the big attack on the 8th of August. You mentioned peaceful penetration, Pete, and we'll cover that in more detail uh, in another podcast, but it's worth mentioning here that we, as Australians, we tend to claim that we invented it. That's, that's not quite true. We were wonderful exponents of this technique of peaceful penetration 
but it was something that was going along all along the British and indeed the French lines as well. And the, the, the concept was that small units, as you said, would go out on effectively raids, but not give up the ground once they'd captured it. And the part of the story that I loved was that one day the Aussies uh, later in 1918 were in a particular part of the line quite actively raiding and a, a report, uh, an order came down from headquarters to say we want the battalion to advance and, uh, and, and take out this section of German trench. And the platoon commander was very happy to report back to headquarters that his platoon had already captured all of the ground stipulated in the order for the entire battalion to take. So, uh, you know, a handful of men, probably only, uh, you know, 30, 30, 40, 50 men had uh, captured an area of ground that was probably intended for 500 in those orders. So uh, it was a, a fascinating period of the war, which doesn't get enough uh, enough attention. This idea of these, the, the, I love this story of this 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 part of 1918 when there's all this active raiding going on and pinching out little parts of the German line and taking lots of prisoners and just continually just nibbling away at the Germans and never letting them never letting them settle. I, th- I think there's a, there's an issue here, and, and you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's happening. But the one issue that I find a, a little disconcerting for the attacking force, uh, for for the raiders, is you never really knew the quality of the men. You you hoped you did. Uh, certainly, if you'd been doing patrolling and taking prisoners, then you you'd been interrogating them uh, to try and find out what quality of men you're facing. But very often. In some areas, you'll get a whole units would surrender and put their hands up as soon as somebody crested their eyes almost. They realised that the game was up. But in other areas, you have the exact opposite. Units with a, a spree de corps, German uh, regiments, battalions, and they would fight it out to the last man. And that's that's part of the problem. As you crested their eyes doing whatever it is you're doing, you, you didn't know what you were going to be facing. Would it be one of the units that they'd surrender fairly quickly or would it be one that would uh, would fight to the last man? Well, these are interesting aspects that come into play in this battle we're talking about now at Hamel, uh, because this, in many raids, could almost be considered a very big raid. It was a very specific point in the line. There was a, a coordinated effort to to capture it by a, a fairly limited force. The battle, I mean, I think most people listening to this would, especially the Australians, would know about the Battle of Hamel and that it was spectacularly successful. Everything, just everything, just worked as it needed to, and the the oft quoted statistic is that it was planned to take 90 minutes and it in fact took 93 and you know and, and all these things and we, we shouldn't let's say at the outset let's not take anything away from the men who and the the commanders and the men on the ground who it was it was almost a perfect plan it was a very thorough and a very good plan which was carried out brilliantly on the ground and that's what yep. we should say so this is a very successful action so let's let's yeah, start I, with that what are your comments I, on that well, I hate that that ninety minutes, ninety three minutes. You no, know, the, the, the comment that Monash planned it for ninety and it was ninety three, and then the battle was over. Because of course, it's nonsense. The battle wasn't over in ninety three minutes. The fighting went on for for the rest of the day. Um, it, it also is nonsense in in the sense that uh, ninety three minutes had we captured every little bit of the objective. No, no, there were variations, and so you just can't say that. And I think I think it just it just confuses the issue. What we should be saying is that the battle went perfectly to plan uh, and it certainly did it, it went it went perfectly to plan okay let's talk about the planning and, and Monash's role in it and, every, and, and all that stuff now I'm not there is a there is a group of historians today that want to diminish Monash and I'm absolutely not one of those I think he was one of the greatest generals Australia ever produced so let's let's put that out there he was a fantastic corps commander one of the best in the British army I think you would absolutely have to say let's talk about the Battle of Hamel though it's also important that we discuss the reality of the situation there is no benefit at all especially a hundred years removed from turning people into supermen and and turning them into saints on the battlefield let's let's talk about the reality of the situation and the reality was Monash was an outstanding 
Corps commander and one of the greatest leaders Australia has produced. And this was a wonderful example of just how well he could run a battle. And that, that is where Hamel sits. It's, it's a, it was a small action, but a very good example of how the war should be fought and how the war indeed would be fought for the rest of the year and right up until the end of the, the First World War. And it did, it, it did paint a picture of how the Germans could be defeated. But let's, let's, let's also, while paying Monash's dues, let's, let's get some reality in there. All this talk about Monash's masterpiece, 93 Minutes That Changed the World, etc. What I want to say is Monash was an excellent engineer and, and in that same vein, he was a great general. But he was, not, he was not an innovator in the sense that he invented these techniques. The Australian Corps was always part of the British Army. And what I say about Monash is he was an excellent consolidator of information. And this applied when he was an engineer. You know, he famously built several bridges in Melbourne. When he built those bridges, he didn't wake up in the middle of the night and say, e gads, I've invented, a, I've just come into my head a new way of cementing stones together or the shape of an arch. Or What he did was he consolidated information that was, was freely available and brought it together in new and interesting ways. So he would read huge amounts of information about how in Europe they were building bridges and a bridge in Asia had done something and a new type of stone was used. And he would bring this information together and then apply it in a novel and interesting way. And that was what he was the master at. And it was exactly the same on the battlefield. So at the Battle of Hamel and at the 8th of August and all these, and Monson Quentin and all these other great actions that we remember him for, he was bringing together information that was readily available and constructing it in innovative ways and, and, and putting it together very efficiently and very effectively. But these were not unheard of tactics. Everyone knew that this was the way that battles were going to be fought. Close cooperation with tanks, aircraft doing more than they'd done in the past, uh, you know, making the men's job easier as they went in, the innovative use of artillery. This was the way that 1918 was going to be fought. And Hamel was a wonderful example of that. But let's not stray into that territory of thinking that Monash invented all these techniques on his own and this was the only time anyone had thought to apply it. Pete, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing from from my point of view is that he had the time here to work it all out. Um, in a lot of the other pre- uh, battles pr- prior to this, there wasn't the time to sit down and really have a good think about it. And you have to say, he sat down and he must have just, just literally wrote every kind of aspect that he could possibly think of that could go wrong and how they would then uh, ensure that this, uh, if, if things even started to go wrong, they could be corrected on the ground. And so we, we get, I just found the, de- the detail of this attack and the pulling all of that detail together is just, it is extraordinary, that, but it is, you have to remember, he had the time to do it. And Monash was absolutely the ultimate micromanager. He would have been a pain in the ass to have to, work for if he was your commanding officer your life would be miserable you would be going to meetings 17 times a day to discuss rations and how they should be distributed in the front line he was the ultimate micromanager and i'm not saying this is a criticism this was also why he was successful is because you see his staff constantly saying how surprised they were that the that the big man was getting involved in details that he they couldn't believe he had the time to even worry about it distribution of ammunition um, the load that the men would carry, rations, how food was going to get to the front line, like the the minute detail that really a, a general in his position should not have, you know, even had to worry about. Monash was obsessed with every little detail. So, so many meetings before this attack, there was a level of frustration. If you read the staff reports about it, there was a, there was a level of frustration about the amount of detail that was being called on for this attack. But at the end of the day, you can't argue with the results. I'm a very results-oriented person and so was Monash and this worked very, very effectively. 
I think one of the issues that I always find fascinating is that, of course, because he viewed that uh, the surprise element was key to all of this, that if it, there was no point in it all, no point in all this this kind of detail if the Germans knew they were coming. And so he made sure that literally to the last minute, units that were going to be used in the attack did not know that they were going to be used because he was concerned that uh, the Germans would, would raid and capture somebody who would give the whole game away. So I find it fascinating that the training for most of this attack was done in a generic way. It was training for the future without anybody really on the ground. A lot of the the men and even uh, some of the uh, battalion commanders not really knowing the detail of exactly when this was going to take place. And the reason the detail and the planning was so important as well is because of something we've touched on before in the First World War, a lack of communication. It was a modern war, but with primitive communication. So because there was really no way of adjusting the plan once it was kicked off, except on the ground, there was nothing the generals could do once the plan had kicked off. That was why Monash wanted to be so involved in the planning, so that every detail that he could, every influence he could make on the battle was taken care of before the battle began. Once the battle began, Monash was a spectator because... There was nothing that he could particularly do to adjust the outcome. And I want to also add here as well something about the ground which we're going to be walking. All of this planning, all of this intricate meetings and discussions and planning took place at the Chateau at Bertongue or Bertangles, which is north of Armion. And it's one of the things that I love most about when I very, very occasionally do a tour of the battlefields, usually with my what we call the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. But I've gotten to know the family that owns that chateau very well. The chateau is still there. Um, and I've gotten to know the family very well. It's still the same family that was there during the war, and um, we now get access to it, which is fantastic, only on very limited tours. But if you do one of our sort of flagship tours with Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, we not only get to go to the chateau, we get to go inside the chateau, we get to walk the grounds, and we get to stand in those rooms where Monash planned and, and, and carried out this, uh, this amazing attack. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary place, and um, another little dimension to the battle that I love is, um, and people probably do it, we should do a podcast on some of these behind-the-lines uh, Places including Batong Chateau. I agree entirely. Yeah. So it's so. Let's say that about Monash. We're not taking anything away. I think I think what it is is a change in perception about what Monash did. It was absolutely extraordinary what Monash did at Hamel, but I think not for the reasons that we think. He didn't invent these techniques. He he implemented them in a, in a very clever way, uh, and um, and then it was acknowledged that it was a very it was a very efficient, a very a very good use. Let's talk about just some of those innovations, Pete, that um, that were were employed not necessarily for the first time, but applied so well at the Battle of Hamel. So I'm thinking about things like carrier tanks. Let's, let's discuss some of these innovations. Let's, so let's start with the carrier tanks. That was a really good one. Well, I think we'll start with tanks full stop and then move to the carriers because the big issue for Australian troops um, and tanks was the disaster that was Bulkar, where they were blamed, uh, that the tanks were blamed as part of the problem. They ran over wounded Australians. There was a lot of issues. And, and go back, certainly go back to our podcast uh, from a few weeks ago about Bulacor and, and hear all about the disaster of the First Battle of Bulacor in 1917 and the role the tanks played in that. Yeah, and I think also there's an issue, again, because there were no Australian uh, tank crew, so they're, they're all Brits. Um, and they just didn't sit uh, very well together, and Monash was aware of that. And he thought, I've just got to sort this out, quite rightly. You know, this needs to be sorted out, because from now on, um, we are going to be advancing, hopefully, and the tanks are an integral part of the battlefield, and we need to make sure that uh, everybody is happy about that. So he spent a lot of time ensuring that battalions were trained with tanks. They were even allocated tanks to the battalions. The battalions painted their patches on the sides of the tanks so that they would recognise them. 
tanks are an issue actually on the battlefield people not that keen on being close to them uh, because they draw fire but of course if they're if they're moving as quick as they they can do then uh, they are they are going to be going to be helpful and the, the communication infantry with the tanks working together it's part of this concept this all arms battle and that's what what this action is going to be it's really the first all arms battle and it's certainly the first one that was written up properly so in other words after the battle then it's going to be written up and i always view that as a very important aspect of this battle it's all right having success but if nobody writes up what went right because we have a terrible habit of recording what went wrong and so this is a a positive reinforcement we call it nowadays is that this needed to be written up and saying this is what went right this is what went well and effectively on the 8th of august we need to be kind of duplicating this if we're going to have the success that they in fact did have on the 8th of august and let's just jump in here to talk about tanks in the First World War because our perception of tanks is is greatly skewed by what happened in the Second World War. We think of Blitzkrieg and very high-speed tanks tearing across France in 1940. It's obviously a very different thing in the First World War. Tanks were effectively mobile support units, mobile artillery, mobile machine gun crews, and they were used very effectively in Hamel and in later battles in 1918 for exactly that purpose. So if you were an interesting infantry unit advancing... And you, came, and you came across a German strong point and there was a German nest of machine guns that was pitting you down and causing casualties, the plan was you could call in a tank to come and, and take care of that. Whereas two years earlier, you would be on your own on that battlefield. You, you would not be able, there was no way of communicating with the artillery that were kilometres behind you to tell them to shift their fire. There was no way of getting mobile fire onto that strong point. So you simply had to take it with guts and glory. The tanks now gave the infantry mobile support on the battlefield and that was happening not just with tanks that was that was a whole process mobility and an independent operation we'll, we'll get into this in a separate podcast because it's a, it's a topic i'm fascinated with but is very it's, a, it's quite a complicated topic but the big change between 1916 and 1918 for example in my mind was that units on the ground could adjust the plans as they had to and call on support that could be adjusted on the ground so that could be things like trench mortars it could be things like Rifle grenades, definitely Lewis guns, the light machine gun that the platoons carried, uh, but also by this stage tanks as well. So that, that, that to me is the key point, that if you were a soldier on the ground, you're attacking a German strong point, you're coming under fire, the plan wasn't un- unrolling as it was supposed to, you now had options. You'd call on a tank, you could call on some trench mortars and, and deal with that strong point on the ground. Yeah, well, just just a little bit. These are Mark Fives, so these are modern, the, the latest version. So these are a lot more reliable, and that was that was the the main key that they needed to be more reliable because they broke down a lot. They're also a little faster, so these are doing seven point two kilometers an hour. So this is this is still walking speed, effectively, <laughs> but it needs to be because these these are designed to to advance with the uh, with the infantry, and you don't want them racing ahead and uh, the infantry losing uh, losing sight of them. So and also uh, just these are. This this is the attention to detail. Tanks carried spare ammunition and water for the infantry. Um, so this is not a carrier tank specifically designed to carry tons and tons of supplies. This is just a, a fighting tank. But even the fighting tanks loaded up with as much as they could of, of water and small arms ammunition so that they could resupply the infantry and just throw it out when they, f- they felt it was a, a good spot to leave some. So it, it's that attention to detail that is key to this battle. It's those little attention as you say attention to detail those little points water was essential on the battlefield this is imagine you're up all night fighting it's it's incredibly tiring and, and creates incredible thirst in the men and getting water to the men in the front line 
was always a huge challenge during every war, but especially during the First World War. Um, trying to get uh, them across that ground was always a difficult challenge. And another thing we should say about tanks before we move on is they discovered this during the First World War and it applies even today. Tanks are excellent at capturing ground and terrible at holding ground. Tanks yeah, cannot hold ground. So even yeah. if a tank manages to break through and smash the enemy, tanks can capture ground, but they cannot hold it. You always need infantry to come up and consolidate and, and support the ground that the tanks had just uh, had just captured. And that was exactly what battles like this one demonstrated. I'm, I'm probably getting way too specific here, but it's a fascinating part of... And this, this is the point that we should start discussing these innovations, that the, the role that tanks would play in future wars was being established now in battles like the Battle of Hamel. But also talk about the carrier tanks, Pete, because they were pretty, uh, pretty fascinating as well. Well, the carrier tanks uh, were, were the latest innovation, really. They were designed to carry literally enormous amounts of uh, supplies. Now, I, I, I did read the figure yesterday, and I did, didn't scribble it down. But uh, it, it basically, it's, it's thousands of men. They are replacing, I think, four carrier tanks replaced, I think it was 1,200 men. Uh, yeah, each, uh, each tank. Each tank carried as many supplies. We're not just talking food and ammunition here. We're talking barbed wire, yeah, everything. pickets, duckboards, sandbags. Each carrier tank carried as much as would normally require 1,200 men. So effectively two battalions by this stage of the war to bring it up. Like a ridiculously large amount of, of, uh, of supplies and then could drop them in pre-designated supply dumps as the ground was, was taken. And so some of the Australians report that they arrived finding a supply dump already in place in areas that only minutes before had been in German hands. Just absolutely extraordinary. Yep. I'll just give the numbers here. We've got 60 tanks operating during the battle uh, and four supply tanks. So four supply tanks operating during the fighting. So just just extraordinary stuff. Other uh, innovations, use of aircraft, Pete. I mean, aircraft had long been recognised as essential on the battlefield and, and their role. Incredible how quickly they developed. That you know, it was, it was only a decade that flight had even existed when powered flight had existed when the, the First World War began. Um, but by this stage, only four years later, the G aircraft became essential on the battlefield, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, previously, they'd, they'd been up in the air spotting, effectively, and uh, the, the fighting going on between the, the fighters was to protect the spotter plane. So it was all about vision and the need to see what your your enemy is doing. Now that's completely changed. I suppose it was the bombing war as well. So if you're going to fly over the... Uh, this is how it started. If you're going to fly over your enemy's trenches, then you might as well throw something out while you're crossing uh, over the trenches. Um, and of course, we now have proper bombers. The London had been attacked in 1917, but the big innovation here is basically the fighter bomber. That's what what it is. It's ground strafing. It's the the fighter, not the fighter bomber. The the fighter, the aircraft that just comes down and strafes uh, your enemy. Um, and so this is what they're being used for. Obviously, you can't do that in the dark. But the minute that it became light, then they the, they were attacking targets. So you've got tanks attacking uh, targets. You've got the aircraft attacking targets, and you've got artillery being used against uh, specific targets. All being indicated by a variety of smoke bombs or other other methods. So again, if you plan it properly then somebody is going to come to your aid if you need help. Resupply as well was also a novel use of aircraft in this stage. This was one of the first times that ammunition was dropped from aircraft, not particularly successfully and not in large numbers, but in a couple of key points, uh, particularly those Lewis gun drums, which were essential to keep the troops going forward. Um, a few small ammunition drops were actually made from aircraft. 
Yeah, so these are being dropped by parachutes. Um, what's fascinating, again, we talked about Monash and his, his attention to detail. He was interested. He wanted to know, well, how did it work? How on earth did you drop something out of an aeroplane by a parachute? Did you pull a lever? And so he became involved. He went to go and have a look. It's his engineering background. He went to go and have a look and see how these uh, how this lever worked. What did it actually do to drop a, a, a case of ammunition to frontline soldiers? So, yes, again, used as soon as it became daylight, they were resupplied uh, by the air. So attention to detail. It would be remiss of us to not talk about the artillery as well. It's, it's the huge irony of the First World War is the artillery is probably the essential weapon on the battlefield, the weapon that caused the most casualties, the weapon that was responsible for attacks failing or succeeding. Yet one of the things that gets most overlooked, it wasn't a particularly glorious war to be a gunner in the artillery, kilometres behind the line, sending over these massive shells, but by God, it was essential, particularly in 1918. And again, innovative use of artillery. Gary Sheffield, the great historian who we both know well, Pete, um, I, I was reading something, a paper that he'd written the other day about success in 1918, and he was talking about specific fuse innovations in artillery shells, just making the shells more reliable, making them explode when you wanted them to, that innovation in artillery shell fuses was probably much more important to Allied success in the First World War than the introduction of the tank. Um, but of course, he makes the point that it's much less sexy to be talking about artillery fuses than tanks rolling across the battlefield. But the use of artillery was an art by this stage of the war. And as we would see, particularly in battles, the one that followed this, the 8th of August, artillery essential and incredibly effectively used. I think I think the barrage maps for this battle and for others uh, really starting in 1917 and the barrage maps are for creeping barrages so protecting the infantry as they're advancing the barrage is moving in front of them um it's extraordinary the 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 technical I suppose uh, the technical use of the guns, because a gunner in the past, he saw his enemy, he fired at it, and I'm going to the, really to 1914, the, the early fighting of 1914, the guns still prepared, uh, preferred to see the enemy. Here, they're not seeing the enemy at all. They are, they're firing uh, from map shoots, and they're all firing at the same time, and they're all raising their barrels at the same time so that the barrage moves forward with the infantry. It, the technical aspect of it is, is mind-boggling. But, of course, we've now got something else as well. We've got machine guns doing the same thing. Machine guns have been put into, effectively, batteries, and they are, they are working and doing the exact same thing. So what we have are, are barrages of, of machine gun fire also supporting the infantry. Uh, these are the Vickers machine guns firing over the, over the heads. It's incredible, isn't it, to think of that is that firing in an arc over the heads of their troops and then having the, uh, the, the rain of bullets coming down on the enemy just be awful to be underneath it. But um, from the artillery perspective, some incredible innovations going on. Triangulation was hugely important. Counter-battery fire was hugely important. So the idea that a huge, a very large proportion of your guns were not necessarily intended to blow up Germans in the front line. They were to take out the German artillery and the science of triangulation to identify batteries where exactly the Germans would be was extraordinary. I mean, they report in this battle and particularly in the follow-up, August the 8th, which was really an expanded version of Hamel, they report that German gun crews who had never been fired on and thought they were completely camouflaged and completely safe were astounded to find that shells just started dropping on their head the second the barrage opened up. So the, the Allies, and the Germans as well, but the Allies particularly, were able to pinpoint via a range of sources, aircraft, spotting, triangulation on the ground. They were able to identify German batteries, which they would not fire on until the battle began. And then these poor German gunners all of a sudden found that they were getting smashed around by the artillery. Just extraordinary. 
it's all become uh, fairly technical as well in this department. We have sound ranging and flash spotting. In the old days, it was a bloke kind of with a megaphone trying to figure out where that noise came from and two of them uh, triangulating a position. And now it's it's technical equipment using photographic film and you know, it, it's a really technical uh, uh, a technical aspect of uh, of the artillery and so sound ranging flash spotting meant that really if you fired at any time prior to a battle then hopefully your gun will be plotted uh, by uh, our uh, teams and then the counter battery fire would come down on it and this battle is a prime example most of the german guns that would have been uh, used to try and protect the german front line were taken out by counter battery fire 10 minutes before the battle the, something that gets mentioned about the artillery as well, which to me was more of a novelty but still quite effective, was the idea that in the days leading up to the attack, they would do uh, they would do sort of spontaneous artillery barrages, and they would mix deliberately. The Allies would mix smoke in with gas shells, so they would fire a, a large proportion of gas shells, but they would also fire smoke shells as well. And in the weeks leading up to the attack, it conditioned the Germans that if they saw smoke, there was also going to be gas mixed in with it as well. And they'd have to put their gas masks on. And so, at in the morning, on the morning of the battle, I, lo- I love these little innovations. The morning of the battle of Hamel, they fired the smoke without the gas. Uh, yet the Germans still expected the gas attack, so they put their uh, their gas masks on. Because of course, the issue with gas is it's fantastic at clearing out the German lines, but it also makes it impossible for your troops to then get in and occupy those trenches. So they, they couldn't have that situation at Hamel. So they just fired the smoke shells. The Germans expected a gas attack put their gas masks on, and the Australians reported in some numbers that uh, that they were taking German prisoners wearing their gas masks, even though gas had not been used particularly broadly during the attack. I think fighting with the gas mask on is my idea of hell. Uh, it, it really is. Even in a modern war, if you put on your, your respirator, uh, your, your vision is much reduced. No matter what you do, you still tend to have an element of steaming up. In the First World War, with the, with the, um, the gas masks, then they would always steam up. And the pH gas hoods, which thankfully have now gone, um, were, were almost useless because they steamed up uh, completely. Uh, now with the, their respirators, at least they could see, but it's much better not to wear a respirator. And of course, the Germans were wearing theirs and our attacking troops were not because they knew they were not going into, into gas. So uh, a, a great innovation and part of Monash's uh, attention to detail. Also, other little things that I like were the, um, the as the, the tanks rolled up, they, um, they used very old, noisy aircraft to swoop low over the German lines to mask the sound of the approaching tanks. It just, you know, innovations that just, you know, made a huge difference. And, and, and it was a clever battle. That's what I always say about Hamel. It was very clever. It was a clever employment of the technology that was available. My favourite, and I think this really shows attention to detail, there were certain areas that were very flat in the Battle of Le Hamel, and they knew that the infantry would have to advance across these flat areas facing German machine guns with no cover. So they deliberately, a combination of bombs and shells, created craters in the field. Now these are these were designed, they were not trying to kill Germans, these are designed to create cover for attacking infantry. So as the infantry advanced they would know where these craters were because what they did then, they then flew flew over the craters, plotted where they are. And so the battalions, as they attacked, knew where these craters would be. So if they came under fire, they knew they could head for a crater to get some shelter. I just think that that attention to detail is extraordinary. Well, Pete, I think it's worthy of discussing these these aspects of the battle because it's such a such a fascinating battle and such a detailed battle. Let's get out and walk the ground, because I should say as well that it's it's not particularly... The ground hasn't changed very much from 1918. It's the beauty of walking these isolated battlefields in little farming regions. They don't actually change that much over the over the centuries. So let's get out and walk the ground, because it's one of... Uh, again, one of my favourites to get out. You can, you can paint the picture of what was going on in this battle, 
by walking the ground. And the other thing I should mention as well, by the time of these 1918 battles, it wasn't the, the static trench lines that had been there for two or three years that we saw earlier in the war. There was a lot of open fighting. It was fighting from position to position. So therefore, when you walk the battlefield today, um, you do get a really good sense of what the troops went through because it wasn't just leaving a trench and marching across no man's land. They were fighting from position to position. And that's exactly what we see at Hamel today. So let's walk the ground, Pete. Let's uh, let's fill our flasks with a refreshing coffee. Let's strap our boots on. Let's get out in the battlefield. Where are we starting? Okay, so we're going to park our car by a crucifix um, on the edge of uh, a village called Versukorbi. And we're going to walk up a track. And that track will take us uh, through the Australian lines up onto a hill known as Hill 104. Um, and into no man's land and just beyond no man's land we hit a a trench known as pear trench now at this point on the battlefield pear trench is actually in this this little uh, road it's slightly sunken um, and so we're going to stop there behind us i'm going to turn to face the direction of attack so that's turning left and we're going to look into a valley and there's a a valley directly in front of us with a wood uh, on the skyline to the left, slightly half left, we can see the village um, of Le Hamel. Beyond it, we can see a ridge, and that is known as the Wolfberg. That is the final objective. To the right, we can see a little copse, first of all, and that's called Central Copse. And then beyond it, and uh, slightly left, um, two woods now joined together into one big wood, and it's Hamel and Ver Wood. So all of these are important objectives, but actually we are standing in probably where some of the hardest fighting took place, and this is in Per Trench. Now, as we just discussed slightly earlier, these are not trenches in the sense of what we would have expected in 1916 or even in 1917, where we have a basically a trench that runs from the channel. If we want to be silly, it runs from the channel to the Alps and there's no breaks in it. That's long since gone. What we now have are what are known as redoubt positions. They have all-round defence. They have a few machine guns. So pear trench is just a length of trench that doesn't appear to be really connected with anything else. But it is because the fire from pear trench is enfilading, in other words, it's coming in from the side of those troops that are trying to attack down through the valley and up towards the the woods. So this is where some of the really serious uh, fighting took place at Per Trench, because here we do have some of those machine gunners that we were talking about, guys that wouldn't give in. They fought to the last, and we get some really tough fighting here right at the start of the battle. Now, Pete, I'm going to confess to being a bit of a numpty here because I've known about Pear Trench for a very long time, for several decades, and it was only relatively recently that I was looking at a trench map and noted the German positions and that the trench at Pear Trench was shaped very much like a pear, like the fruit, which is obviously why it was given the name. And it, I had never, it had never occurred to me before, that. The, but when you look at a trench map, you absolutely see that. Something we've been remiss in not mentioning to this point, Pete, and it, it does come into effect here greatly, is the Americans had also attacked alongside the Australians. That A number of, about a thousand American troops um, were also brought in. One of the first actions Americans fought on the Western Front. And there's a whole story about how the Americans were supposed to fight in larger numbers and then the the American commanders withdrew them, etc., etc. But about a 1,000 Americans went into the attack here alongside the Australians, one of the first times that American troops took part in an attack of this nature. And that's why Monash chose the 4th of July as the date for this attack to, uh, to really uh, fire up the Americans who were attacking alongside. They didn't play a huge role in the battle. They uh, were not particularly effective in the battle. Um, but it was handy to have the American troops there to bolster the Australian numbers. And they, they, they did attack in that region around Pear Trench. I think it's important. It's important for the future because as the uh, Australian Corps 
uh, fights onwards towards the end of the war, it is going to shrink in size considerably, and the Americans are going to increase in size, con uh, size considerably, and they are going to be fighting side by side uh, alongside the Australians. So this is the start, the first day really, of uh, of that cooperation between uh, America and Australia. In fact, it's also famous because the very first uh, Medal of Honor was awarded uh, during this attack. So the very first American to be awarded the, the US Medal of Honor, then he has awarded it uh, during the fighting here. So let's talk about the fighting around Pear Trench because it was quite interesting and it's a great spot to stand and, and as you say, observe the battlefield, but also to think about the fighting that occurred here. I should also mention there's a, a photo. We'll put the photo up on the uh, Facebook pages and the, and the Twitter feed. There's a famous photo of a dead German uh, medical uh, soldier lying outside a trench taken during the Battle of Hamel, one of the most famous photos uh, from Hamel, and that was taken at Pear Trench. Uh, and so let's let's talk about some of the fighting here, Pete. Yeah, there's also another photo, and it may be the, the same one, uh, Matt, I'm not, not sure, but there's another photo which actually is exactly where we're standing. So it's in this sunken road. It's in the section, and you can see on both sides of the sunken road there are uh, sections of German trench. So fighting very tough here, and... Uh, as in all of these battles, you'll need individuals to help keep things moving. And the German guns here enfilading the, the advance needed to be taken out. The men had been driven into the ground. And one man who is going to be awarded the Victoria Cross, um, and this is where it gets tricky because his name is uh, debatable as to how you pronounce it. So uh, Henry um, Deal. I always say Dalziel because that's what it looks like, but that is definitely not how you pronounce it. I took uh, I took Matt, his family around this battlefield uh, several years ago, which was a great honour, and I still contact them occasionally. And they, I called him Dalziel as well. It's spelled D-A-L-Z-I-E-L, and I was just calling him Dalziel. They corrected me, but the problem is I cannot remember. The correction made absolutely no <laughs> sense to the spelling of the name, and I cannot remember how they pronounce it. It was either Delish or it was D-L, but it was not Dalziel. But anyway, Harry... Harry uh, We'll go with DL. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, he's a, he's an interesting uh, um, an interesting character and uh, a very uh, good. I'm going to read the citation uh, because it's uh, it's such a good fighting citation. Um, so, uh, for most conspicuous bravery and devotion to duty when in action with the Lewis gun section. So, this is one thing uh, we mentioned earlier. Lewis guns crucial in every battle from now on. Every action from now on, the Lewis gun is what what is going to help us. It's basically it's a weapon that can be fired from the hip, not commonly fired from the hip. You were not really trained uh, to fire it from the hip. It's got a bipod at the front, and you lay down and you fired it. But they discovered that the uh, in the half uh, half light, and I should also say this was planned to give you about eighteen meters of vision. This whole battle again, that detail. 18 metres should be enough for you to be able to tell whether that man that's uh, at 18 metres is an enemy or a friend. And so the, the Lewis gun fired from the hip, a leather strap round the neck to the front of it, so it, it gives it extra support. Um, and uh, that's uh, the, an awful lot more Lewis guns uh, used during this attack. So uh, uh, Henry is, is commanding a, a Lewis gun section, and his company met with determined resistance from a strong point which was strongly garrisoned, manned by numerous machine guns and undamaged by artillery fire. Uh, it was also protected by strong wire entanglements. Uh, a heavy concentration of machine gun fire caused many casualties and held up our advance. His Lewis gun, having come into action and silenced enemy guns in one direction, an enemy gun opened fire from the other direction. Um, he dashed uh, at it and with his revolver killed or captured the entire crew and gun and allowed our advance to continue. He was severely wounded in the hand, 
but carried on and took part in the capture of the final objective. He twice went over open ground and under heavy enemy artillery and machine gun fire to secure ammunition, and though suffering from considerable loss of blood, he filled magazines and saved his gun until severely wounded through the head. His magnificent bravery and devotion to duty was an inspiring example to all of his comrades. Uh, there's a little bit more, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. J- just quickly talk about the wound to his head. It's extraordinary that he survived because apparently his brain was showing, um, but he went on to have a, 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 a to recover fully and have a, a, a healthy life. His own. I'd also read with with the um, with the hand wound as well, Pete. I'd also read that he um, that he had his trigger finger shot away. That he actually lost a finger in that attack. When they say severely wounded in the hand, although his family member said that wasn't the case, that he did have all these digits. But I think the wound in the hand mangled his fingers quite severely. Was the uh, was the the general consensus so much so that his comrades thought he'd actually lost a finger. So, but I mean, imagine what you know—a bullet going through the through the fingers or the hand is going to do a lot of damage. And again, hit in the head as well. I mean, th- this this attack reminds me a lot of. Um, a lot of um of, of Barcelona in in Guadalcanal in World War Two. You know that the idea that just one man was every everywhere doing everything, not only attacking positions and killing the enemy and bringing the line forward, but then running back and getting ammunition, then coming and reloading the Lewis guns. He was just everywhere doing everything. And and you know as as we said, these are the great Victoria Cross citations because they're just how is he ever going to do anything except receive the Victoria Cross for an action like this? Just extraordinary. I think these are guys that really uh, get it into their head that they're going to do during the fighting absolutely everything they can to keep their comrades alive because that's what this is about. This is about ensuring that he's keeping alive his comrades, his Lewis gun teams, um, and and also he wants to go home, as all of them did. And, And there is this big, big change, and that's something we should have mentioned earlier in this attack, that everybody is is on a high this is an attack which which basically is our turn it's our turn this is the start of of an element of revenge you would have to say of pushing the germans back so th- this is a really buoyant attack these guys are wanting to get to grips with the with the germans of course not everybody is you have to say not not everybody feels like that but in the main this has been instilled within them in their training prior to this attack that this was our turn this this is we are we are going to start we are going to win this war and we are going to force them back you're right what you say too about that feeling of retribution against the germans because several reports particularly from battles like villas bretno which had taken place a couple of months earlier but one issue that the uh, that the officers had was trying to hold the men back that once the men got going against the germans they wanted to keep going and this was there was a lot of scores that were settled in these battles it's awful to think about what that means. You know, it means killing and death and, and getting sometimes a very brutal revenge. But that was a big element here that they felt after all these years of trenches and mud and being away from their families that they were finally going to give the Germans the kick up the bum that they deserved. And so there was quite a level of retribution and score settling which took place in these battles. Really quite horrific when you think about what that means on the ground. Uh, there's an interesting uh, account. This is his own personal account of uh, this action, um, and uh, I'll just I'll just read it. We were harassed by a murderous fire from the nearby enemy stronghold. The Australian advance was held up. My gun had cleared up one machine gun nest, but the other, uh, planted in a different direction, opened fire. I dashed at it, killing seven Germans with my two revolvers. Now that gives you this imagery of him of him attacking with a revolver in one hand. I, I, I personally don't think that's what he actually meant. I think that trying to reload was very difficult, and I think he probably had just two revolvers, and he would uh, uh, drop one and then draw the other one and, and carry on shooting. Maybe <laughs> he may have had a revolver in each hand. I'm not sure. Uh, 
one German bloodhound wounded me in the hand, so this is when he was hitting the hound, but I soon had him on the ground. I lunged at him with my German dagger. So that tells you that at this point, he hasn't got any revolvers. He's dropped everything and he's using a dagger, catching him right over the heart. His dying cry upset me and I shivered. So he's actually uh, plunged his uh, a German dagger, which he must have picked up as a souvenir and was using as a fighting dagger. We now call them fighting daggers uh, and, and, and killed him in, in hand-to-hand combat. So... The the citation, the official citation, doesn't really tell the whole story. I think that that's, uh, his own personal account is, uh, is a, a much more interesting account. Doesn't reveal a lot about the fighting at this stage as well, about men innovating. You know, these are experienced fighters now. They, these guys have been fighting for a long time about what they would take into the battle. What You know, we see this all the time with soldiers about what they felt they needed in a battle. He was a Lewis gunner, so therefore he wasn't carrying a rifle because he had the, the quite bulky Lewis machine gun. Even if he wasn't personally carrying it, he was responsible for, for directing them. So he he was carrying, as he said, two revolvers, deciding that even one revolver wasn't enough, so he was carrying two revolvers, and a German dagger, which he felt was going to be handy in a tight spot, and evidently was. So just just brutal fighting. I also saw a quote from from um, from this man, DL, <laughs> Delish, Dalziel. He went back... Um, many years later, he went back... Uh, I think it was in the 30s, he went back to the to the battlefield and walked the ground. Um, and it's almost quite sad, his account. He said, I, I couldn't... Like, he went here to where we're standing. He went to this sunken road to Pear Trench. He said, I just couldn't find anything that I recognised. It just seemed to be a different place. And there was even a note of sadness in his... Uh, just in that account that he just... He felt estranged from that action that had taken place 20 or 30 years earlier. So uh, just, just... I always love those stories of veterans returning to the battlefield and, and walking in the footsteps as we are right now. Uh, of course, you have to imagine the state he would have been in, adrenaline pumping, and, and this is this is dark. This is still uh, uh, dark, you know, half light, I suppose. So it would still be a, a, a you can imagine all flashes and, Im- and imagery and, and and gunfire and noise, and you're just not going to be able to re- repeat that. And it just it's, it's not going to feel the same standing in an open paddock as we as we are now, uh, looking across a, a peaceful landscape to a beautiful wood. Well, it hasn't changed, as we said earlier again. This, this landscape has not changed. The wood is in the same place. The road is in the same place. You know, everything's in the same... The village hasn't even grown. The village is the same size. In fact, the population is less now than it had been prior to the Great War. So nothing has changed uh, at all, but it would certainly feel very different uh, nowadays to, to that night. A reflection on the mental stresses of combat as well is, that, you know, the, when your blood is high and you're charging in and fighting for your life, it's going to, it's going to be very different. Anyone who's been through a, you know, a trauma would, would note that it's going to feel very different when you look back on it. And again, there's some wonderful photographs at this time that, that the photographic technology was advancing and the importance of photographs was acknowledged. And there's a photo that I really love, which to me sums up everything that was going on, which is a picture of a captured German trench mortar position after, on the morning of the battle after the fighting had stopped. Just with Australians draped over every corner, they can sound asleep. They've been up all night. They've the the, the strain of combat was immense, and um, you know it's reflected well in that photo of them just sleeping in the in the summer sun wherever they can find a spot. They're actually stretcher bearers, so I think they're absolutely exhausted from basically going backwards and forwards to the front line and back to the front line and back, uh, taking uh, men back their battalion stretcher bearers. So it's, it's, I know exactly the photo you're talking about. Because it's a great photo. And what's interesting, that mortar didn't open fire. That German mortar still has the cover on it, the leather cover that covered the barrel. So it didn't even have the opportunity to open fire. It was overrun before it could be used. So where to next on the walk, Pete? I think Pear Trench is a is a an absolutely fascinating spot on the battlefields in general, and there's there's more to come on this battlefield. 
Right. Pear Trench now swings away on our right-hand side, so you have to imagine that we've broken, th- uh, broken through Pear Trench and we're heading down into the bottom of the valley. Uh, and we have this little bushy area on the right-hand side, and again, very clever planning by the Germans. This is Kidney Trench, and I know you're going to tell me that this was this one's in the shape of a kidney, which I hadn't noticed, but it, it probably is. Um, and so Kidney Trench on our right-hand side um, is uh, in the bushes, and uh, it's still, uh, we can imagine exactly where it is. Obviously, there's nothing there now, but we know exactly where it was, and you can imagine it, it being there in this little copse, little copse of trees. So just two or three trees. Again, there's a, f- a few uh, low trees here as well. And... As we walked down the road, we would have been fired at from the flank, from the right-hand side. So again, it, it's uh, going to take individuals to actually to take this, uh, this, this section of the trench. Heavy casualties, uh, well, not heavy casualties. Relatively speaking, this is not a battle of heavy casualties. But casualties, again, taken by the machine guns there. It's a little nest of machine guns, but it's going to be taken out. And again, we have an individual act uh, of a, a Lance Corporal. Uh, Thomas, he was actually known as Jack Axford, um, who will be awarded the Victoria Cross. Now, I have to say that these are the 15th, um, Deal was the 15th Battalion, and uh, Axford is the 16th Battalion, so both from the same brigade here. And that's one thing I should have also said. Three brigades being been uh, utilised during this fighting, but they're from different divisions. And again, it's Monash deciding, let's mix it up a bit. Let's not use one division in this attack. Let's use brigades from several divisions. So what we're doing, we're, we're giving experience to uh, to the different divisions. And we're also meaning making sure that the losses then are not all piled upon one division as well. So uh, this is quite a long walk, Pete. We're, we're walking the ground towards the village now across the battlefield once we leave Kidney Trench. We're going to walk up now, actually covering the ground the Australians did, literally walking in the footsteps of the attacking Australians and Americans. Where are we heading to next? Yep, so we're, we're now, uh, we have the woods in front of us and actually we're going to come out as a place where the Germans, it was the German route in and out of the battlefield. So it was known as Hun's Walk. Again, Monash is planning, because he knew that this Hun's Walk directly in front of us, this little route through the woods, this little track that runs through the woods, he made sure that this was bombarded during the, the fighting very heavily. It meant that the Germans couldn't withdraw through it um, and also we took a lot of prisoners and also it meant that the Germans couldn't resupply. Um, so we're not going to walk that way. We could, and if you've got lots of time, you can walk up that way as well, walk through the wood to the uh, to the ridge. But we're going to hang a left here and walk on the road back towards the village of La Hamel. So we're heading towards La Hamel uh, itself, which, as I said, has not changed. Uh, destroyed in the fighting, very badly damaged, but size-wise, rebuilt. It's been rebuilt on exactly the same footprint. Uh, you, you would recognise it. If you were a soldier returning, then you would definitely uh, recognise the outline of it and the footprint of the of the village itself. So tell us about walking into the village, Pete, because, again, another famous photo. This, do- this battle was very well documented with photographs. There's a famous photo of a tank rolling through the village of Hamel, uh, echoes of the, the tank in 1916 rolling through your village of Fleur. Tell us about the village. Apart from the, very few of the tanks during this action broke down. We don't get any knocked out. I think uh, two of them had uh, had problems, but none of the, no tanks completely destroyed in this fighting, and so there's a very famous picture of the tank rolling through the village. And interestingly... Most of it has been rebuilt, but there's just some big, big gates and uh, and part of a wall that are still there. It's exactly the same. So it's one of the only places where you can stand and say, yep, this tank was right alongside this this uh, bit of the wall. It's almost opposite the church. The church had gone. Church is always destroyed because of the, the vision issues with them, people up in the towers. So they are always targeted. So the church here had been uh, taken out by our, our artillery. 
The Germans within the town itself, they were overwhelmed very, very quickly. Um, they, a lot of them took shelter in the cellars. And this action is going on so fast that the Germans are not ever really able to say for certain where the Australians are. They can hear the tanks coming and they can see the Australian infantry. And at this point, the Australian infantry was ahead of the tanks. The tanks couldn't keep up. And it gives you an indication, really, that uh, they were also a little slow in getting to the, uh, the start of the battle. Um, and uh, the... They catch up and, are, as we discussed, they are used when they are needed, so that communication. I'm just going to go off on a tangent because it's just something I found found fascinating. I once had a, a long conversation with an Australian that I was taking on tour, and he was absolutely adamant that his relative had fought in the tank during the Battle of La Hamel. And I was absolutely adamant that there were no Australian tank crew. So I said he must have been involved in that period of training because he had a picture of him. He told me and he showed me it, a picture of him standing in the in the door of a tank, standing by the entrance to a tank. But he said, no, he was definitely. In, and I said, no, he definitely was not. Well, damn me, reading uh, uh, in, in the last few months more about the battle, I found a, just a simple little comment. And it was a, a request for Lewis Gunners to be attached to tanks temporarily because there were not enough Lewis gunners uh, available uh, in the tank corps and they wanted some Australians to to add some more firepower to the tanks that would be put inside the tanks. So he was absolutely right. So this poor old bloke, I'd been arguing with him that his relative had not ever served in the tank. His relative obviously did. He was a, he must have been a Lewis gunner attached uh, to a tank during the uh, during the fighting. Bad luck for him. That was not a good role to be. I mean, the, the tanks did well here, but uh, gee, it was uh, that was not a great day when you were allocated to uh, be on the crew of a First World War tank. I really like the village of Hamel. It's uh, it's it's a lovely little place. It's a cute little village. I mean, all these villages are much the same, but it's 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 you know it's got the hill behind it. It's a nice village, and I love. I've got to do a big shout out to my friends in Hamel, the people in Hamel. We. Um, again, a little tangent, but I think people appreciate it, is that we, when we run tours, which we do every Anzac Day to uh, to the Australian National Memorial at Villas Bretno, which is just down the road from Hamel, we uh, we always, in the early days of running the tours, had an issue with breakfast because we, we would pack breakfast boxes, which people would then tend to eat at three o'clock in the morning and then be hungry by the time that the service was over. Or then we, you know, should, should we should we go back to the hotel for breakfast? It was always a big issue. And then one day I was chatting to some people from the village of Hamel and my dear friend Tom Morgan was actually the one that suggested this. He was one of the historians on the tour. We were chatting to the people of Hamel and poor old little Hamel, in spite of its significance to Australians, gets badly overlooked on Anzac Day because all the action is happening at Villas Bretno. And so we spoke to the local people and we said, would you like to host our tour group for breakfast? And we've done it now for... 12 or 13 years probably it's been not obviously at the moment with COVID but up until that point and it's one of the absolute highlights so I just want to say a shout out to the wonderful people of Hamel we do it in the school hall next to the church the kids make pictures of kangaroos and koalas and write notes which they put on the wall and if it's a school day the kids are all there they come in early and they sing Australian songs and the local people are there making coffee and baguettes and croissants and none of them speak English and very few of our people speak French and the mayor comes down and makes a speech in French. And it's it's just the most extraordinary connection with the local people, which I think is something that you can potentially miss if you're just traveling around at a breakneck speed, just seeing battlefield sites. And so a huge shout out to the wonderful people of Hamel, very close to my heart and one of the absolute highlights of, of visiting the, the battlefields on Anzac Day. 
Yeah, I miss it terribly, and uh, uh, it, it is great, and it's very, very French. It's very ad hoc, and 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 you never quite know quite exactly how it's going to work, but it it works very well, and the, and the food is excellent, and the coffee is is very needed, having uh, stood all all night. So it's oh, it's it, it's it's brilliant. It, it it's uh, really good. A sad little aspect. Um, and I noticed that several. I've been quickly flicking through some guidebooks uh, before we uh, we started this this podcast, and uh, quite a few of them mentioned the bar in the village. Uh, well, sadly, it's no more. The bar is now a house. It, it's gone, as an awful lot of the bars in the villages uh, in northern France have uh, have hit the dust. Um, so I miss it terribly. That ability to have a, a coffee and uh, and a beer, if you uh, if you wish, uh, as a break in your touring. So you have to now carry it all with you. And so we'll be carrying our our coffee with us, and we'll we're going to head up through the village now and towards the village war memorial so this is the start of the climbing ground which will eventually take us up to the wolfberg which is the the german uh, strong point their final objective that in fact where the command structure was based and um, we're past the war memorial. I always stop and have a look at the French village war memorials. Always worthwhile uh, having a look at them. And this one is particularly nice, and it nearly always flies the Australian flag as well, commemorating the, this battle. And uh, not just on Anzac Day, there's normally an Australian flag flying uh, beside the war memorial. Um, and we're heading now uphill, very steep climb, a sunken road. So there's a, a ridge at both sides uh, side of us, and we're heading to the Australian Corps Memorial Park. Now, I could spend a whole podcast discussing the Corps Memorial Park because, in my view, it is one of the best and uh, 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 sites uh, organised from Australia, built by Australians. Uh, well, actually, not necessarily built by Australians, but uh, certainly employing contractors local contractors to build it but it is superbly designed and planned but this is this is not its its first um its first uh carnation it, it was uh this is its second one uh what do you, what do you think about this one matt i agree it's it's an absolutely fascinating spot i mean it's a beautiful memorial which commemorates the australians there's original trenches probably one of the few places on the western front where we know trenches that were dug and occupied by australians and the ones at guadacore as well i think they're they're australian too but one of the few places on the Western Front. Um, I sure, I'm going to do a shout out here to John Laffin, the former the historian who died many years ago. John Laffin was one of the reasons that I got interested in all this sort of stuff. I read all his early books and he's been decried greatly since he passed away, which is not unjustified. He, he was not a perfect character, but... Um, he was responsible for, for in a big part for this memorial. He led the the he led the the initiative that said the Australians don't have a, a place where there's preserved battlefield that commemorates the Australians. So in the 1990s, he was a driving force behind this. So whatever you think about John Laffin, and as I said, he's quite he's quite reviled these days. People are not a fan at all of John Laffin. But whatever you think of John Laffin, um, I think we should remember that he was a big driving force behind this, and his motives were pure about keeping Australians interested in the, in the battlefield. So I, I do want to do a shout out. He wasn't a very early influence on me. And I, I remember as a, as a teenager reading his books and I wrote a letter to him and he kindly wrote back. And that was a big influence on me um, that John Laffin was, uh, was, was out there and remembering the Aussies at a time when other people weren't. So um, his reputation has changed since he passed away, but uh, this is a good spot to remember him. 
I, th- I think everything's changed, really. I mean, he, he was a, a leading light in the lions led by donkeys uh, uh, kind of uh, aspect of the war and uh, n- now uh, very much re- reviled, not probably too strong, but uh, it's it's not seen as uh, as accurate. Um, but I have uh, several of his books on my bookshelves, and I think it's necessary to, to, to have them, to see how, how thought and, and, and things have changed. So uh, so I, I agree uh, uh, completely with you, Matt. I think it's he's part of the story of remembering the Great War, and it's now remembered in a very different way as to 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 how how he remembered it and how he wrote about it i, I didn't ever meet him but i met his wife uh, several times he has a he had a belgian wife I've, I've met her a few times so when was this created well originally it was created uh, or opened inaugurated i suppose on the 4th of july in 1998 now that is not what we're looking at as i said this is the the second incarnation of uh, of, the, of the site it basically uh, was not well looked after in its uh, its first uh, first appearance. It started to look uh, uh, dowdy and run down, and because of that, it, it attracted the wrong type of people. It wasn't policed, and so uh, we would we would get uh, the, the youth up there and a little bit of graffiti and a bit of damage, and then it literally started falling to bits itself. It had enormous uh, marble panels on this uh, curving wall. And those marble panels started to drop off, so they fastened bits of wire around it to try and stop it. Oh, and it was just it was just a terrible mess. And thankfully, what happened is rather than attempting to patch it up, it, they demolished the whole site. The whole site was demolished and it was completely rebuilt and inaugurated on the 8th of November 2008 by Quentin Bryce. Um, and... I think it's absolutely brilliant. And in fact, it's one of those locations because there are explanatory panels about every aspect of the battle or most aspects of the battle. If I was being lazy, really lazy, I could just kick my clients out and say, well, go and read those panels. It tells you the whole thing. And it does. And it's just so well designed. And I just like every aspect of it. And the views are phenomenal. It's even got a toilet. (laughs) That is so rare on the battlefield. (laughs) It's um, you're right. Everything you say, I mean, it's you. You could do. You could sum up 1918, the at least the Australian experience of 1918, from this one point. Um, you can see there, from there, you can just see the top of the Australian National Memorial at Villers Bretonneux. You can swing around and see the Somme Valley, uh, which was crucial in the fighting of 1918. You can see the chimney stack where the Red Baron's plane crashed. You can see it from there. Which, if you're, you know, if you don't have time to go to the Red Baron site, you can at least see it from this spot. And then you've got these wonderful preserved trenches. You can see the old whole Hamel battlefield, of course, and talk about the Battle of Hamel. And then when you swing around and face east from these trenches, those are the trenches from which the famous Battle of Army on the 8th of August, the Great Attack, the Black Day of the German Army, that's where it began. And in the distance, looking to the east, you can see the church spire at Proyard, which was effectively where that battle ended on the 9th of August. So... This period of 1918, the 100 days, can really be summed up from this spot. And indeed, when I'm touring the battlefields and I have to take people, it's very difficult to to sum up on the ground the 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 entire the entirety of the 100 days, this advance at the end of the war. So usually, I do it from this memorial at at, at Hamel uh, because it just it, it it paints it in front of you like a like a portrait. And um, interestingly, that you were talking about the rebuilding of the memorial, it was fascinating how they went about it because the original memorial with the black granite also featured inscribed on it was that famous that famous photograph of Monash was replicated on the on the memorial, and a lot of people objected to that that an individual would be <laughs> would be would be featured so prominently on a on a war memorial. So that was removed, and now it's just it's it's simply words. But even the orientation was changed. I think, Pete. I think the memorial originally faced in a completely different direction. 
it faced it faced to the park to where 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 you park your car. It actually faced to the car park, which yes, okay, you could see you got out your car and you could see it straight away. Um, now it it faces the direction that the Australian troops came from. It is, I mean, it, it's got an enormous great rising sun badge in the in the middle. It is so classy now, whereas before you have to say it had a little bit of an element of Mickey Mousey about it. It, it felt cartoony. It just it didn't feel. <sighs> It just didn't feel right somehow, and it was very different to everything else on the battlefield anywhere. Well, I have to say, on almost any battlefield anywhere, um, and uh, and now it just feels uh, just feels right. It just feels uh, imposing. It's clever. Um, it doesn't use up too much land. There's there's parking areas. There's a place you can have a picnic. So they literally built picnic benches. So with school groups, I very often they'll we'll have our our picnic here. Um, it, just the whole thing. There are there are seating around the actual memorial. This big rising sun with uh, an inscription uh, that uh, the French president. I'll, I'll read that in a second. And what he said, and and you can literally sit a whole school school group, a whole coach load of people, and stand in the middle and do a, do a lecture, and then just beside it are these little preserved trenches, this redoubt position, and you can, I I tend to go into a whole talk on on redoubt positions and and how you use them and where the machine guns will be placed. So you can do so many things there, and then as Matt said, turn round and talk about the hundred days, and you can see a crouch wood from there, one of the first objectives of the eighth of August. So. Fantastic site, and sadly missed by a lot of people because it doesn't fit well into a route, uh, and so a lot of people go from Villas Bretonneux to Albert, and they may point it out from the ridge opposite where the Red Baron was shot down. Uh, but it is missed by a lot of people who are on fairly tight schedules, and it is, in my view, absolutely essential that you visit this site. And the preserved trenches, of course. They're, they're, well, they're not preserved trenches. They're original trenches that they, they filled in with stones to keep them uh, keep them in place. One thing I actually like to do when I'm there is if you duck into the little scrubby patch behind the memorial, the trenches continue through there. And so you can actually see these original trenches originally dug by the Germans and then occupied by the Australians after their victory here. So an essential site. Really great. Let's let's hear what the, uh, what the French president had to say, Pete, which is now inscribed on the memorial. I have to say, I'm not a particular fan of this, and I, and I, I, it's essential that he, that it's written down because it is exactly what he said, and he was he certainly he was overjoyed with what had happened because he could see that this was the start of the end in the, in this area and the start of uh, of us rolling up the German line. So this is what he what what he said uh, when the Australians came to France, the French people expected a great deal of you. We knew that you would fight a real fight. But we did not know that from the very beginning you would astonish the whole continent. I shall go back tomorrow and say to my countrymen, I have I have seen the Australians. I have looked in their faces. I know that these men will fight along, uh, alongside of us again until the cause for which we are fighting is safe for us and for our children. You have to say it, it, it's brilliant. But, but, but my only slight problem with it is that we knew that you would fight a real fight. Um, and I just, just wonder, what is it saying about everybody else? <laughs> so I suppose I turn it round a little bit. It's kind of a great, uh, you know, it's a great slap on the back for the Australians, but what is it saying about everybody else? So I always have, I always have a kind of a look at it sometimes. And I think, well, I'm not sure, but it is a great compliment to the Australian, uh, the Australians fighting here, certainly at La Hamel and elsewhere, of course. It's also, it's also probably unique that the Australians would take the opportunity to say that we did a good job somewhere during the First World War because I don't know if you've noticed, but us Australians are incredibly humble 
And we like to just remember that we were part of a a team and that we just did our small part. Obviously, I'm being ridiculous here. We, we, we Aussies love the suggestion that we won the First World War. I'm not even saying this in an offensive way to any Australian. I mean, as Aussie, I will beat my chest as much as anyone, but it's a great Australian tradition to get over there and to say that all you Poms would be speaking German if it wasn't for us and to actively believe it. And good on us for um, this is a, a moment where we, uh, you know, where we, we, we beat our chest hard. But I mean, every, every nation needs to do that. And as, as we've said in our previous podcast, I think New Zealand is probably the only country that doesn't claim that they won the war with their one little division. <laughs> but um, I think every, every country needs that spot to say this was where we did great things and there's no better spot than that uh, for that than Hamel. Much more, I think, than the um, even the Australian National Memorial, you know, in terms of a spot where you can stand and just remember what a great job the Aussies did. This is the one on the battlefields. This is a, a great spot. I have to say, having said all of that that we've, that we've just discussed, it, it's unusual that it has so many flags flying here because we have an American flag, we have the British flag, we have the French flag and we have the Australian flag. So we have the four flags. And, and, and the Canadian flag. And I think, Did we mention the Canadians? No, the Canadians not there. So the Canadians, not their flag doesn't fly there. So so it, so it's interesting. So it's interesting. I'm going to look that up. I'm pretty sure the Canadian flag flies no, there. But because, Pete, you go there more than I do. So Because how I always look at it is the Brits are on the left. So you've got the, Brit- the British flag. So effectively, we're on the other side of the river. The Americans are here. So so their flag is there. The French, it's it's uh, their country. And of course, the Australians, because uh, they're here. Oh, does it have the Canadian flag? Oh, it might have that. And then the Canadian flag might be on. Now I'm not sure now. Now you've said that. Is the Canadian flag on the other side? Because the Canadians were on the right. Because the Canadians were on the right. Oh, damn. You might be right. <laughs> I'm going to have to check. We're going to have to have a look. We're going to have to look this up now. See, this is the joy. People who think that these are scripted podcasts where we're just reading for a script now know that that's absolutely not the case. So we will, the second we finish recording, we will have a look. I, I think it's five flags. I think the Canadians are there. Because the reason I say that is because people always say, where are the New Zealanders? Why have we missed out our Anzac yeah. Yeah. But it would have, if we had to include the entire coalition that was fighting, there would be, you know, 115 flags. So we've got to draw I'm now going to reword it. And I'm just going to say there are a lot of flags flying at La Hamel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking it up as we speak. Carry on, Pete. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so a great memorial and uh, certainly well worth going to uh, have a look at. So we're going to walk back to uh, where we parked the car. Um, there is a little toilet block, as I said, which which is bizarrely is crucial uh, on on the battlefield. And then beside the toilet, so we have another little area of preserved trenches, which is always worthwhile having a a quick uh, rummage uh, uh, through that uh, as well. I always like to get people into onto the landscape if uh, if we can. But the views are just spe- spectacular. It, it is uh, it is uh, extraordinary what we can what we can actually see from here. Once this was taken, this is this effectively was the end of the battle. It's the final objective. It was taken within that i'm going to say it, that 90 odd minutes it doesn't really matter it just it was taken as it was planned to be taken and we dig in and uh, and then we we wait again and literally a month later on the 8th of august or just over a month later then that uh, that black day for the german army and this is where we're going to uh, jump off uh, this is where it's it's going to uh, the australian troops will attack from I, I am looking at a photo of the memorial now pete and uh, left to right we have american british australian french Canadian flags. Of course. So I'm, glad we cleared, I'm glad we cleared that up. And the Canadian flag is obviously there because um, of the essential role that the, not so much in this battle, of course, but the essential role that the Canadians played alongside the Australians on the 8th of August. I like the fact that this site is also a nod to the 8th of August. And as much as we say that, oh, as Australians, we tend to be a bit one-eyed about the Battle of Hamel and claim that it was the turning point of the war, I love that at this site, it's also very 
much a commemoration of the 8th of August as well, the Battle of Armion. And that was the day that that changed everything in the war, the, the Black Day. And and um, and when you stand there and you look, if you look uh, east, you see a little wood way on the skyline and there's, you can just see the spire of a church peeking out above it. And as I said, that is the village of Pro Yard. It was not taken for a couple of days. It wasn't taken on the 8th of August, but that was a, close enough to, close enough as it makes no difference. That was where the advance ended. And when you see how far... I mean, it was something 12 kilometres they advanced on the 8th of yeah. August. Just incredible from this point. Yeah. Just they, they, it, The Germans called it Der Schwarze Tag. Absolutely. The Germans called it Der Schwarze Tag, the Black Day. So, um, so again, I, I always like that this site commemorates uh, the 8th of August as much as it commemorates the Battle of Hamel. Um, I'm just going to do the final figures. I think it's uh, important that we have a look at the, uh, at the casualties. I would give them accurately to you if I possibly could, but I looked at three or four different sources and they all gave me gave me different figures. So I've kind of had to come up with a mean average, really. So approximately 1,400 German prisoners were taken uh, and 2,000 Germans were killed during the fighting. Australian casualties, um, about 1,062, which is an odd figure. It seems like a very accurate figure, but then I found another another account saying 1,400. So around about, let's say, uh, 1,250 Australian casualties. And then this is where I've had such a real variety of figures. Uh, one quote, 800 killed. I think that's just wildly over the top. And then another quote, 250 killed. So I think I'm going to stick with the 250 killed. Have you seen figures for these, Matt, at all? Yeah, it's, all it's, it's always figures. a bit confusing. I'm not sure why in a battle that was so well documented that there's so much confusion. We, we, we know for a fact that there's almost a, an unshakable rule in the First World War that when you look at the casualty figures that about one-third are killed and two-thirds are wounded. So that would put it... So I, I think you're right. I think it's probably 1,200-odd casualties and maybe about 400 killed, I would imagine, yeah, would be yeah. a fair assessment. But I, I agree. It's strange that we, we can't seem to get any agreement. It could be the fact that there was... It could be the divisions involved. There were so many divisions involved, and you know, one brigade from each division. You know, it could it could be something to do with that. But yeah, it's it's difficult to pinpoint. But I'd say if we we, we thought about twelve hundred uh, casualties with four hundred killed, uh, the one thing that you just can't um, overlook is is how much lighter the casualties were for the attacking force than the defending force, which is very rare in the First World War. You normally uh, in the First World War, like in many wars, they looked at that three to one ratio that you want three times the number of troops attacking as defending. And the attacking troops are the ones that are going to suffer the, the huge casualties. Certainly wasn't the case here, so it reflects how well the battle was planned and carried out. We should all, before we go, Pete. Let's also talk a little bit. You mentioned the first Medal of Honor to a, an American uh, in the First World War. Thomas Pope, talk to us a little bit about Thomas Pope. Okay, Thomas Pope uh, again uh, advancing uh, embedded. So it, these guys were not all put together. So the Americans are not in. Uh, the, I think there were uh, several. Uh, companies, four companies uh, attacking, but they were not all, to, all together. They were spread uh, liberally amongst the Australians. And so I'm going to read his citation. Um, he's serving with Company E of the 131st uh, Infantry, 33rd um, United States Infantry Division. His company Doesn't that just sum up right there, Pete? Doesn't it just sum up this the immense size of the US forces that are already being employed? This is already the 33rd Division. The, um, you know, not not necessarily all there at once, but the Australians only had five divisions in total. <laughs> He's part of the thirty third, and and this is just the start. Uh, I did have the figure of the number of Americans at this period that were arriving in Europe, and it, it's it's mind boggling. It, it's mind boggling how many Americans, and that's what the Germans knew. That that's why the Germans at this period knew they were going to lose the war because the Americans are here. Uh, it's not about their fighting ability; it's about their manpower. There's just so many of them. Uh, his company was advancing behind the tanks when it was halted by hostile machine gun fire. 
Going forward alone, he rushed the machine gun nest, killed seven, uh, several of the crew with his bayonet, and standing astride uh, the gun, held off the others until reinforcements arrived and, and captured them. So it's a great, you get this great imagery, don't you, straight away, of this American standing above this captured machine gun with his, his bayonet fixed, holding off any attempt by the Germans to uh, recapture it until, he, uh, until help, ar- uh, help arrived. Uh, so a very kind of heroic uh, imagery, and, and one that the Americans would have loved, the, the first uh, Medal of Honour uh, going to a soldier fighting here, Corporal Thomas Pope. Something I discovered, Pete, uh, relatively recently when I was doing some um, historical research for Peter Fitzsimons' book on the Battle of Hamel. Um, something I discovered, I'm not saying I was the first one to find this, but uh, it certainly hadn't been noted very widely to that point, is that Pope was the, the very next day, the 5th of July, was um, was heading back to the reserve area and a random shell landed and wounded him. And uh, he was shipped home and never, never returned. So his war was one day, the 4th of July, 1918 was effectively his one day of, of combat in the First World War, and uh, he made good use of it by <laughs> earning the Medal of Honour. <laughs> we should certainly... Um, Thomas Pope represents the Americans who, yeah, as you say, they, 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 they were just inexperienced. It's no reflection on their fighting ability as individuals. It's just that they were inexperienced, and several Australians were killed trying to get the Americans sorted out during the attack at Hamel, as would also occur in later battles where the Australians fought alongside. There was one, uh, one Australian sergeant. The Americans were in danger of walking too quickly and walking into the creeping barrage, the shells were, that were falling in front of them. And one Australian ran forward to try and hold them back and uh, he was killed by a, an Australian shell that landed and um, and wounded him and he later died of his wounds. So yeah, an important moment. I mean, and, and even today, Hamel is brought up, you know, politically when Australians, you know, when we talk about the ANZUS Treaty and the, the way that Australia has always fought so well alongside the Americans, um, occasionally we, uh, we do flip it back and say the first time that the Americans in the 20th century fought alongside their their, uh, their allies was uh, with the Aussies at Hamel. So, um, you know, it's it's this was really the start of very uh, important Australian-American association, which has continued to this day in various forms. So Hamel is often looked back on as that first time Australians and Americans fought together. I have to say, this also, this battle is, is used um, by almost all armies, uh, modern armies, as an example of an all-arms attack. And quite often you'll find little groups of uh, of uh, guys, very short hair, uh, here at, at this site, and they are what are known as staff rides. In other words, what they are is they are officers in training or officers uh, uh, promotion courses, and they come here because you can stand at this site, the site where we are now, the core, the Australian Core Memorial Park. And you can effectively stand here and talk the whole battle from this one point. We've just done the walk, but you could actually come here and you can talk the whole battle. And because it is such a classic action, the very first, what you would describe as the very first all-arms attack, tanks, guns, aircraft, infantry, all knowing what each other's doing and all supporting each other, that it, it, it is important and so it's taught uh, still to this day. People come here and, uh, and are taught about this battle. And the main reason that can be done, we should say, is it was a small battle. That's right. That, as you say, you can stand there at that one site and see the whole battlefield. The reason, that's not to take anything away, but the re- it was a very compact, contained battle in a small space. You can see the entire battlefield. There's no way you can see the battlefield of the 8th of August or any of the later actions that occurred, but you can stand here on this hill and like looking at a map, you can, uh, you can see the whole, uh, the, the, whole, uh, the whole terrain and the importance of that terrain in the effectiveness of the all-arms battle. So yeah, a good spot. You'll often see uh, army groups here talking about the battle just a fantastic a great spot absolutely if you're interested in australian actions whether you're australian or one of our international listeners um definitely go to this site it's 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 a really wonderful spot and um pays tribute to a lot of very brave men on both sides 
So um, always a um, always a great site to visit. Pete, once again, thank you so much, mate. I learn so much from doing these these talks with you that uh, I come into them thinking I know these battlefields, and I come out with my knowledge greatly expanded. So once again, mate, thank you just for your uh, your your rare insights into these important chapters of history. Uh, it's a pleasure, Matt. I, I always go away thinking, oh, I didn't mention that, and I didn't talk about this, but it'll it'll be we can save it for another day. Don't forget, when we're allowed to visit the battlefields again, Pete is one of our key guides on the battlefield. So you, uh, there's a very good chance if you join us on one of our battlefield tours through Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours that Pete Smith will be your guide. Uh, you can even request him if you want to. If you are signing up for one of our group tours, you can request that Pete Smith is your guide and you will get this and so much more on the ground with Pete Smith, which is an absolute treat. And uh, perhaps get to share a cold beer at night as well. So, Pete, I'm looking forward to when we can get back and start showing people the battlefields for real. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on these virtual walks. Pleasure, Matt. Very enjoyable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member for a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week. <laughs>